So this past Tuesday was October 31st. And most people in America associate October 31st with costumes and candy. But in the church, October 31st is associated with something far more significant. In the church, October 31st is associated with the Reformation. You see, back in 1517, on October 31st, 1517, a German monk and theology professor by the name of Martin Luther wrote up 95 theses and he nailed them to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And those 95 theses, they were, they were really points of disagreement that Martin Luther had with the church. Uh, he had identified 95 ways that the church had strayed from God's word. And, and by nailing these 95 theses to the church door, he was asking the church if they could have a conversation about getting back to the Bible. That day and that action are often seen as the beginning of what we call the Reformation. And if you treasure having a copy of God's word in your own language, if you're grateful that you belong to a church that values God's word and seeks to follow God's word, then you should thank God for Martin Luther and for the way he courageously lived for Christ. Last Sunday, we talked about living courageously for Christ and how that involves teaching the truth about Christ. Well, Martin Luther did that. He taught the truth about Christ, and, and it took a lot of courage for him to do that. It took a lot of courage for him to nail those 95 theses to the church door. And the reason why it took a lot of courage is because that action invited a lot of opposition. After Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the church door, the church really wasn't interested in having that conversation with him. They excommunicated him. They officially declared him a heretic. They banned his books. And they even told the people that you can kill Martin Luther and there won't be any punishment or penalty for that. So Martin Luther was forced to hide in, in a castle in Germany, in Wartburg Castle, for a year because it just wasn't safe for him to be out in the public. But after that year in seclusion, Martin Luther just couldn't stand the thought of being cooped up any longer. He wanted to get out and live for Christ among the people. And he wanted to do that because he knew the people needed to hear the truth about Jesus Christ. And, and he knew that he was called by God to share that truth with them. And so Martin Luther came out of the castle, and for the next 24 years, the rest of his life, he lived among the people and publicly taught the truth about Jesus Christ, despite facing a lot of opposition and even threats to his life. Now, what was it that enabled Martin Luther to carry out his calling in the face of all of the opposition that he faced? I'll tell you what enabled Martin Luther to do that. It was his prayer life. You see, Martin Luther is not only known for being a key leader in the Reformation, he's also known for being a man of prayer. Martin Luther understood the importance of prayer in the life of a Christian, and he is credited with saying something about it that I want to share with you. Martin Luther is credited with saying this about prayer. He said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Martin Luther was essentially telling you that you cannot live the Christian life without prayer. You cannot live the Christian life without prayer. But you know, that's what we try to do all the time. Okay? Sometimes we try to live the Christian life without prayer because deep down we just don't believe that God hears our prayers. And there may be times when we try to live the Christian life without prayer because we don't think we need to pray. We think we're good enough and strong enough and capable enough of following Christ on our own. Or sometimes we try to live the Christian life without prayer because we're just so busy and distracted that prayer kind of gets pushed out of our busy schedules. 
And then there's times we try to live the Christian life without prayer because, well, God hasn't answered our prayers in the past and we've kind of just given up hope that he hears our prayers and answers them. If Martin Luther were here today, he would give us some advice. If Martin Luther were here today, he would say, friend, it's not possible to live the Christian life in your own strength. If you want to carry out your calling in Christ, then you must pray continually and you must pray effectively. And you know, if the apostle Peter were here and the apostle John were here, they would say the same thing. I know Peter and John would say the same thing because of what we see in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. That's the passage we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it out and you can open it up to Acts chapter 4. Book of Acts would be in your New Testament. You've got the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then right after that, you've got the book of Acts, which tells about what happened in the life of the church in those 30 or so years after Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave. Now, we've been studying through the book of Acts here on Sunday morning, and for the past few weeks, we've been talking about Peter and John. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John went to the temple in Jerusalem, and when they were on their way there, they saw a man who had been paralyzed from birth laying by one of the gates, and this man was asking for money. And Peter looked at the man, and he said, he said, man, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter grabbed the man by the hand and lifted him up. And immediately the man began walking and leaping and praising God. Well, this miraculous healing, if you remember, it attracted a crowd. Okay, the people who witnessed this, they all gathered around to see this man who had been healed. And, and Peter explains to him that it, or to the crowd that it really wasn't his power that healed the man. It was really the power of Christ. And Peter went on and told those people in the crowd that all of us will be resurrected from the dead someday because Jesus was. And those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ will be resurrected from the dead to spend eternity with him. But those who haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ, they'll be resurrected and face God's judgment in an eternity apart from him. Now in Acts chapter 4, what we looked at last week, the priests and the captain of the temple and this influential group of Jews known as the Sadducees, uh, they gather around Peter and John, not because they wanted to hear what they were saying, but because they were annoyed by what Peter and John were saying. Uh, they arrested Peter and John and put them in jail for a night and then brought them before the Sanhedrin, which was basically the Jewish Supreme Court. And the Sanhedrin really couldn't convict Peter and John of any kind of crime, and so they said, well, we've got to let these guys go. But if we're going to let them go, we better tell them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And so that's what they did. And Peter and John knew that they couldn't obey this gag order that had been placed on them. They knew they couldn't obey it because Jesus had commanded them to go out and to be his witnesses and to tell others about him. And so what's the first thing Peter and John do when they leave the Sanhedrin after they've been commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Christ anymore? Well, we're going to turn to the scriptures and we're going to find out what they did. So if you've got your Bible open to Acts chapter 4, I'm going to read verse 23 through 31. And if you are able, would you please stand in honor of God's holy and inspired word as I read it this morning. So this is what the scriptures say in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to your throne with confidence this morning. And I thank you that we can do that because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And so it's in his name that I pray this morning, Father, that you would open our hearts and our minds as we discuss your word. Help us to understand what it means and help us apply it into our lives. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So what's the first thing that Peter and John do when they are released by the Sanhedrin? Well, the very first thing that Peter and John do is they run to their friends in the church and they have a prayer meeting. Now, why did they do this? Why did Peter and John run to the church and have this prayer meeting? I'll tell you why. Peter and John ran to the church and had this prayer meeting because they knew they could not carry out their calling in their own strength. Now, as we look at this passage of scripture today, the main point that I'm going to make is this. Because it is not possible for a person to live the Christian life in his or her own strength, we must pray continually and effectively to carry out our calling. Okay, because it is not possible for a person to live the Christian life in his or her own strength, we must pray continually and effectively to carry out our calling. Praying continually means praying all throughout the day, every day. Praying effectively means praying in a way that God grants our requests. That's what effective prayers are. Effective prayers are prayers that God answers. James chapter 5 verse 16 uses that kind of language. Now this prayer that the early church offers to God, it's an effective prayer. It's an effective prayer because God answered it and granted their request. The believers asked God for boldness to continue witnessing for Jesus, and God gave them the boldness that they asked for. So what made this prayer effective? Why did God answer this prayer and grant their request? That's what I want to talk about today. As we look at this prayer that the early church offered to God, I'm going to point out four characteristics of an effective prayer. And the first one is this. Effective prayers are prompted by our need for God. Effective prayers are prompted by our need for God. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says that when Peter and John were released, they ran to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, when Peter and John reported what had happened to them, I imagine they said something like this. Okay, the scripture says they ran to their friends. So I imagine that they were kind of semi out of breath when they got there. And they said, hey, brothers, sisters, you'll never, you'll never guess what happened to us. You see, you see, you see, okay, I've got my breath now. All right, see, we were up at the temple yesterday and, and God used us to heal a man who had been paralyzed for over 40 years. And then, and then this crowd gathered around us and, and we taught them about Jesus. 
But then, but then guess what? The authorities came and they arrested us and they, and they made us spend the night in jail. But then, but then guess what? Guess what? This morning, they put us on trial before the Sanhedrin and, and the Sanhedrin said that we can't speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they threatened us with consequences if we do. But we, friends, we can't, we can't keep silent. We can't keep silent because the Lord has commanded us to be his witnesses and, and to make disciples. So church, friends, brothers and sisters, will you pray with us? Will you pray for us? We need to pray right now. Let's get on our knees and pray right now. We need to pray now because we need God now. We need God because we, we, we can't stand up to the Sanhedrin on our own. We can't, we, can't, we can't face the opposition in our own strength. We can't, we can't manufacture the courage that, that we need to carry out our calling. Church, we can't handle this situation on our own, but God can handle it. We know God can handle it because if God raised Jesus from the dead, he can do anything. So let's pray. That's what I imagine Peter and John said as they ran to their friends and reported what had happened to them. Thirteen years ago, when Amy was diagnosed with cancer, I remember sitting in one of the rooms in the cancer center back in Baltimore, and I, I saw a poster on the wall, and the poster on the wall said this, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's what the poster said, God won't give you more than you can handle. When I saw that poster, you know what I thought to myself? What a bunch of baloney. I mean, have you ever heard that before, that God won't give you more than you can handle? I mean, you see it on posters in the doctor's office. You might see it on coffee mugs, T-shirts. You might see it on cards. You know, the cards that have the little cross symbol telling you that it's a religious card. You'll find this saying written in a lot of places, but you know where you won't find that saying written? You won't find it in the Bible. Go ahead, read your Bible from cover to cover. See if you can find it. God won't give you more than you can handle. It's not in there. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, the Bible does say that God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But that verse doesn't mean that God won't ever give you more than you can handle. That verse means that God won't ever put you in a situation where you don't have the ability to respond in a way that honors him. In other words, God won't ever put you in a situation where your only option is to sin. As that verse goes on to say, no matter what the temptation is that you're facing, God will always provide a way of escape. There will always be a way for you to respond in a way that honors him. Now, when you're facing some kind of trial or going through some kind of tribulation and people tell you that God won't give you more than you can handle, they probably have good intentions, but they're misapplying 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. When it comes to trials and tribulations, when it comes to difficulties, God most certainly allows us to experience more than we can handle. And he does that so that we will turn to him. That's what the Bible teaches. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Okay, just listen to this. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Did you hear that? Did you hear what the Apostle Paul said? 
The Apostle Paul said that when he and his companions were telling people about Jesus in Asia, he says they experienced affliction and were so utterly burdened beyond their strength. Paul was telling the Corinthians, when we were in Asia, God gave us more than we can handle. He gave us more affliction than we could handle. And why did God do that? Paul told him why God did that. Paul explains it. He says, this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Paul explains that God allowed him to face more than he could handle so that he would learn to rely on God and not himself. And Paul explained that God allowed him to face more than he could handle so that he would recognize his need for God. And brothers and sisters, I would say to you that we need to recognize our need for God. Okay, first and foremost, we have to recognize our need for God to forgive us of our sins. Do you realize that the payment that God requires for your sin and for mine is more than any of us can handle? We are not capable of earning God's forgiveness. We can't do enough good to earn God's forgiveness for the bad that we've done. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you know who the poor in spirit are? The poor in spirit are those who know that they cannot take care of their sin problem on their own. The poor in spirit are those who recognize that they cannot do anything to earn God's forgiveness. The blessed life that Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes, it all starts with recognizing our need for God. Effective prayers also start with recognizing our need for God. You see, church, God will sometimes give us more than we can handle on our own, and he does that to remind us that we need him. And he does that to remind us that we cannot live the Christian life and we cannot carry out our calling in Christ in our own strength. God gave Peter and John more than they can handle. Gave them more than they can handle when they were arrested by the Sanhedrin and put in jail and threatened with more consequences if they continued to, to share Christ. God gave the apostle Paul more than he could handle when he was in Asia. So if God gave them more than they could handle, there's no reason to believe that God won't give us more than we can handle. But when he does that, remember, he's doing that so that we'll recognize our need for him. God wants us to turn to him in prayer. Effective prayers are prompted by our need for God. That's the first characteristic. Now, the second characteristic of effective prayers is this. Effective prayers express trust in the sovereignty of God. Effective prayers express trust in the sovereignty of God. Verse 24 says that when the church heard Peter and John's report, verse 24 says they lifted their voices together to God. So when the church heard Peter and John's report about the little, the little run-in that they had with the Sanhedrin, and when they heard the report about the gag order that Peter and John were under, and the consequences that they were threatened with if they, if they broke that order, when the church heard this report, verse 24 says that immediately they turned to God in prayer. Now the Greek grammar that's used in verse 24, what it suggests is that there was one person who was praying, and all the rest were agreeing with that person in spirit. Now what I want you to do is I want you to look at how the prayer starts off in verse 24. The very first words of the prayer are sovereign Lord. 
The very first words of the prayer express trust in the sovereignty of God. You see, addressing God as sovereign Lord, this was, this was a way to express trust in God's power and in God's rule over all of creation. Now, the word Lord that's used there in verse 24 when they say sovereign Lord, okay, the word Lord that's used there, it's not the typical word that would be used for Lord. The word that was typically used for Lord is a word that means master. But the word that's used here in verse 24 is a word, is a word that means despot. In fact, it's the word despotes. Okay, just take the, the last syllable off and that's how we got our English word. Now, a despot or a despotes is a, is a ruler who holds absolute authority that cannot be questioned. This prayer is an effective prayer because from the very beginning, it expresses trust in the sovereignty of God. It expresses trust in his absolute authority over all of creation. And the rest of verse 24, it continues to express that trust. You see, the church not only addresses God as sovereign Lord, but then they also address God as the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. The church further acknowledges the sovereignty and the authority of God by pointing out that God is the creator of all. Now, if you read through your Old Testament, you're going to see that so many of those who prayed in the Old Testament, they start their prayers by pointing out that God is the creator of all. I'll give you one example. When the Assyrians were threatening to attack Jerusalem, when King Hezekiah was, was in power, King Hezekiah went to the Lord and asked God to save them. Just listen to how he started his prayer. It's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 16. When the Assyrians were coming to attack, Hezekiah said, O Lord, you are God, you alone. You have made heaven and earth. Now, Lord God, save us. God is the creator of heaven and earth. That's a biblical expression that means God is the creator of everything. And you see that expression in Hezekiah's prayer in Isaiah 37. You see that expression here in the prayer that the early church prayed in Acts chapter 4. So many prayers in the Bible have some variation of that expression that God is the creator of heaven and earth. And you know why that is? You know why so many of these prayers in the Bible start off by acknowledging that God is the creator of heaven and earth? It's because it's a way to express trust in God's sovereignty overall. You see, there's a principle that God has woven into the fabric of this world. And we see this principle in, in all kinds of places. The principle is that the creator has authority over the creation. Parents have authority over the children they create. Copyright laws give authors authority over the books that they write. Entrepreneurs have authority over the businesses that they start. Well, God is the creator of all. God has the authority over all. Because God is sovereign over all. Now, when we pray, it is necessary to constantly express our trust in the sovereignty of God. When we pray, it is necessary to express our trust that everything and everyone is under God's rule and authority. It's necessary to constantly express our trust in the sovereignty of God because trusting in God's sovereignty is the only way that we can deal with the ups and downs of life. Do you like roller coasters? I do. I always have. 
Well, the other day I was reading about this uh, lady named Lisa, and she likes roller coasters, but that wasn't always the case. Uh, Lisa said there was a time when roller coasters used to, well, as we would say in Pittsburgh, scare the living daylights out of her. All the ups and downs, all the twists and turns. Lisa says she was always terrified that the coaster would fly off the tracks. And this fear that she had, it prevented her from enjoying the ride. But then one day that changed. One day Lisa said to herself, you know what, from this day on, I'm going to start trusting the person who created this roller coaster. I'm going to trust that they designed it in such a way that it will not fly off the tracks. You know, Lisa said from that day on, from the day that she started trusting the creator, she can go to the amusement park and enjoy the roller coaster. In fact, she said they have become her favorite rides in the park. Now, you know, living the Christian life is a lot like riding a roller coaster. There's ups, there's down, there's twists, there's turns. Just look at what Peter and John had to deal with in a, in a single day. First, they go to the temple and heal a man who was paralyzed for over 40 years. That's up. Then they preach to a large crowd and see a great response. Up some more. But then they're arrested. Down. Put in jail. Down. Threatened by the Sanhedrin. Down. Isn't that how the Christian life so often goes? I mean, one minute you're flying high, serving the Lord, and then bam, health problem crops up and knocks you down. Or one minute you're on a mountaintop feeling closer to the Lord than you've ever been before, and then bam, your hours get cut at work and you're in financial trouble. Life is full of all kinds of ups and downs. Now, some people think that when they start following Jesus Christ, that God's going to smooth out the road ahead. They think it's going to be all ups and no downs. I hate to tell you this, but I've got to tell you this because the Bible makes it clear. The Christian life is not a smooth life. It's a life that's full of ups and downs. But you know, the Bible is also clear that the best way, and really the only way, to deal with those ups and downs is to trust the creator of heaven and earth. Trust the one who is sovereign over all. Expressing trust in the sovereignty of God, this is so important because it shows humble submission to God. And that's what God wants from us. God wants us to submit to his sovereign authority. And so expressing trust in the sovereignty of God, this is the second characteristic of effective prayers. Now, the third characteristic of effective prayers is that they are tied to the word of God. Effective prayers are tied to the word of God. After the church expresses trust in the sovereignty of God in verse 24, they quote from the word of God in verse 25 and 26. The church quotes the first two verses of Psalm 2. Now, before we talk about what Psalm 2 says and why the church quoted it, I want you to just notice how the, how the church introduces the quote in the first part of verse 25. They say that God, the sovereign Lord, spoke through David by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's so much theology packed into that introduction that, that I can't just blow by it and talk about the quote. I've got I've to take a minute and I've got to just, just share with you what we learn from the way they introduce the quote from Psalm 2. You see, the first thing we learn is that we serve a God who speaks. 
We serve a God who has chosen to reveal himself to us. And one of the primary ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to us is by speaking to us. Now, when God chose to reveal himself to us by speaking to us, he did so by inspiring some human beings to write his words down in some books. God's Holy Spirit worked in these human authors in such a way that the words that they wrote down were the exact words that he wanted them to write. We call this the inspiration of Scripture. And the books that God inspired some people to write, it's the 66 books that we have here in our Bibles. That's why we call this God's Word. And that's why when I introduced the passage that we read today, I introduced it by saying that this is God's holy and inspired Word. Now, one of the books that God inspired some human beings to write is a book called Psalms. The book of Psalms is in our Old Testament, and it's, it's essentially a book of prayers. And there were several human authors who made contributions to the book of Psalms, and one of those human authors was King David. King David didn't write all of the Psalms, but he wrote a lot of them. And one of the Psalms that he wrote was Psalm 2. And now Psalm 2, it starts off talking about how the Gentiles and the kings and the rulers of the earth gathered together and plotted against the Lord and his anointed one. This is the part of the psalm that the church is quoting in verses 25 and 26. Now, King David wrote Psalm 2 about a thousand years before Christ. And he was referring to himself as God's anointed one. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that the kings of Israel were often referred to as God's anointed one. And if you ever read the books of 1 and 2 Samuel in your Bibles, which chronicle the, the life and the reign of David, you'll see that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and, and the other kings and the rulers of the earth, they were constantly plotting against David. They were always after David. So when David wrote these opening verses to Psalm 2, he was writing them about himself. But if you really start to dig into the Bible and study it, one of the things that you're going to discover is that in so many ways, King David foreshadowed Jesus Christ, who is the king of Israel and God's anointed one in the ultimate sense. So when something happened to David, or when something was written about David in 1000 BC, a lot of times it foreshadows something that would happen to Jesus Christ. The opening verses of Psalm 2 are a perfect example. The church knows that David wrote Psalm 2 about himself, but they also know that Jesus is God's anointed one in the ultimate sense. So in verses 27 and 28, they explain how they saw Psalm 2 play out right before their eyes in the life of Jesus. The church explains how the Gentiles and the kings and the rulers plotted against Jesus in and, 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 and just the same ways that they plotted against David. They point out that King Herod, that would be Herod Antipas, how he treated Jesus with contempt and mocked Jesus and, and then sent him to a ruler named Pontius Pilate for a trial. And that ruler named Pontius Pilate, he failed to exonerate an innocent Jesus during the trial. So the Romans, the Gentiles, they crucified Jesus. Now, why does the church quote Psalm 2 in their prayer? Why do they explain how this, this psalm has just played out right in front of them in the life of Jesus? I think the reason the church does this is that they're reminding themselves that God knew in advance that Jesus would face opposition. And if God knew in advance that Jesus was going to face opposition, then God knew in advance that his followers would face opposition. So the church is reminding themselves that all this opposition they're facing hasn't caught God by surprise. 
It's all been accounted for in God's perfect eternal plan. And reminding themselves that this opposition that they're facing hasn't caught God by surprise, this enables the church to go to God with confidence. They can go to God with confidence that God can and will intervene on their behalf. The church is basically saying, God, you knew all along that this opposition would come to us. You said long ago that Jesus would face opposition. From eternity past, you accounted for all of this opposition we're facing in your perfect plan. And since this opposition is in your perfect plan, and since you've commanded us to continue witnessing for Christ, we're coming to you in confidence that you're going to help us face this opposition and overcome it. We're confident that you're going to help us carry out our calling. The church was praying with confidence. I mean, when you read this prayer that's in Acts chapter 4, the confidence that the believers had, it just, it just oozes out of the pages of Scripture. Now, a lot of Christians, maybe you're one of them, a lot of Christians don't pray with confidence. A lot of Christians don't pray with confidence because they either don't know what to pray about or they don't know how to pray about the things they know they're supposed to pray about. If you want to pray with more confidence, one of the best ways that you can pray with more confidence is to tie your prayers to the Word of God. Just read the Word of God and then talk to God about how it relates to what's going on in your life. Or use the prayers that are in the Bible as models for your prayers. That's what I mean when I say tie your prayers to the Word of God. So, for example, the believers here in Acts chapter 4, they prayed for boldness to witness for Christ. Well, when you read that, ask God to give you boldness to witness for Christ. That's how you tie your prayers to the Word of God. And when you tie your prayers to the Word of God, you'll pray with more confidence because you'll know that you're praying about the things that God wants you to pray about, and you'll know that you're praying about those things in the ways that God wants you to pray about them. Prayers that are offered with confidence... These are effective prayers. Prayers that are prayed in confidence are prayers that God will answer. Jesus says so in Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew 21, verse 21 and 22, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. If you want to see God answer your prayers, then you must pray with confident faith. And one of the best ways to pray with confident faith is to tie your prayers to the Word of God. Effective prayers are tied to the Word of God. That's the third characteristic. And then the fourth and final characteristic that I want to point out today is this. Effective prayers are in line with the will of God. Effective prayers are in line with the will of God. Another benefit of tying your prayers to the Word of God is that your prayers will be in line with the will of God. When Jesus said that we'll receive whatever we ask for in prayer, there's, there's an assumed condition there. Okay, Not only must we pray that prayer in faith, but we must pray that prayer in line with the will of God. God's only going to answer prayers that are in line with his will. And the Apostle John actually explains this in one of the letters that he wrote a few decades after these events that we're reading about in Acts took place. In the letter that we have in our Bible called 1 John, in chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, he says this, he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. 
John says that God answers prayers when those prayers are in line with his will. Now look at the prayer that the church offered when Peter and John came and reported what the Sanhedrin had said. When the Sanhedrin told them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, look at what the believers asked for in verse 29. They asked God to empower them to continue speaking his word with boldness. And then in verse 30, they asked God to continue doing miracles through them. And they asked God to continue doing miracles through them because they knew those miracles would create opportunities for them to tell people about Jesus. Just like it did when they healed the paralyzed man at the temple gate. Now God answered their prayer. God answered their prayer because that prayer was in line with the will of God. Jesus commanded them to make disciples. Jesus commanded them to be his witnesses. That was God's will for them. And it is for us as well. And God answered their prayer. And God gave them the boldness they needed to carry out his commands. Because that request was in line with his will. Now let me give you some examples of prayers that God would not have answered. If the church had prayed this. If they said, God, the Sanhedrin is threatening us with consequences if we teach in the name of Jesus. Will you please send someone else to tell the people of Jerusalem about Jesus? God wouldn't have answered that prayer. If the church prayed, God, the Sanhedrin's threatening us with consequences. Can we just leave Jerusalem now? Can we kind of move on to the other parts of Judea and Samaria now and tell them about Jesus? God wouldn't have answered that prayer. In other words, if the church had prayed, God, would you just make our lives easier and more comfortable? If the church was praying like that, God wouldn't have answered that prayer. And he wouldn't have answered that prayer because that prayer would not have been in line with his will. God's will was for the apostles to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem at this time. God knew that wasn't going to be an easy task. God knew they would face opposition. But that's what God's will was. Church, listen to this. God's will is not for us to live the easiest and most comfortable lives possible. God's will is for us to expand his kingdom. And sometimes that's a difficult task. Sometimes that's a dangerous task. Now, how did the early church know that it was God's will for them to boldly continue witnessing for Jesus in Jerusalem? How did the early church discern God's will so that they could pray in line with God's will? I'll tell you how they did it. They spent time with God reading his word and praying. You remember Acts chapter 2? At the end of Acts chapter 2 where Luke tells us about life in the early church? The first thing Luke said about life in the early church is this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship, which was seen in their times of corporate prayer. Spending time with God in his word and in prayer, that's how we get better at discerning his will. Scientific research has confirmed something. Scientific research has confirmed that when two individuals enter into a long-term committed relationship, those two individuals become more and more like each other. Those individuals who enter into a long-term committed relationship, they begin to speak more like each other. That's why couples who have been married for some time can often complete each other's sentences. But these individuals don't just become more like each other in the way they speak. They become more like each other in their facial expressions, their body language. They feel the same emotions at the same time. They develop the same habits. The phenomenon has a name. It's called identity fusion. 
Identity fusion happens when two individuals enter into a long-term committed relationship and become more like each other. Now, if we interpret this research from a biblical perspective, we can say that God has wired us to imitate those that we hang around with the most. I mean, God actually speaks to this in his word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, God says, bad company ruins good morals. In other words, if you hang around bad people, you're going to pick up some bad habits. But on the positive side, God says in Psalm 37, verse 4, that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. In other words, if we delight ourselves in the Lord by spending time with him, reading his word, praying, worshiping him, serving him, as we delight ourselves in the Lord in these ways, God is going to mold and shape our hearts in such a way that we will want what he wants. That's what it means when it says he will give us the desires of our hearts. He'll make his desires our desires. The Lord's going to bring our wills in line with his. And that's how we'll get better at discerning his will. It starts with delighting ourselves in him and spending time with him. So if we want to pray effective prayers, if we want to discern God's will and pray in line with God's will, we've got to spend time with God. Now, the early church, they prayed an effective prayer, and God answered their prayer. They prayed for boldness to continue witnessing for Jesus, and God gave them the boldness they needed. Just look at verse 31. Verse 31 says that God shook the room where the church was gathered, and God filled the, spirit, uh, the believers with the Holy Spirit. It means God gave them a fresh awareness of the Spirit's power and presence. The believers prayed for boldness to continue witnessing, and God gave them that boldness. Verse 31 concludes by saying that the believers continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. Verse 31 concludes with a statement saying that the believers continued to carry out their calling in Christ in the face of all the opposition they were facing. And they did that because they prayed effectively. So brothers and sisters, I want to ask, do you want to live the life that God has called you to live? If you do, I want you to know that you cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. You must pray continually and you must pray effectively to carry out your calling. You must petition the Lord with prayers that are prompted by your need for God. You must petition the Lord with prayers that express trust in the sovereignty of God. You must petition the Lord with prayers that are tied to the word of God. And you must petition the Lord with prayers that are in line with the will of God. That's how you pray effectively. Now let's do that continually and watch for God to answer in powerful ways. Will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you're a God who is seated on the throne, sovereign over all of creation. Father, we thank you that from eternity past that you knew everything that we would be facing in our lives right now in this moment, that none of it has caught you by surprise. Lord, all the ups, all the downs, all the twists and turns that we face as we go through life, we can have confidence that you've accounted for all of these things in your perfect plan. And God, we recognize our need for you this morning. You have called us to live for Jesus Christ, to make disciples for him, to be his witnesses, to honor him in all that we do. Lord, we can't do that in our own strength. We need you to fill us with your spirit. We need you to give us 
your strength, your power, your boldness. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. We thank you for revealing your will to us in your word. And Father, I pray that you would give us a deeper hunger for your word, a better understanding of your word. And Father, as we delight ourselves in you, I pray that you would mold and shape our hearts and our desires to match yours so that we can pray in line with your will. Father, you're a powerful God. You shook the room where the believers were gathered to pray. And you answered their request and gave them boldness to continue living for Christ and building your church. Father, I would ask that as we come to you in faith, with prayers that are in line with your word and your will, that you would hear from heaven and answer in powerful ways. Glorify yourself, Lord, by answering our prayers in Jesus' name.